those of us who are Iran watchers for a long time, we've been pointing out that it doesn't actually take much for, for the regime to scare people off the streets. What we're seeing this latest round is that they're actually much more willing to take risks. You do have a regime that feels that this is part of a plot. I mean, they mention names, countries specifically, how the U.S. is the mastermind, Israel is the tactician, the Saudis are financing everything, the British are the media masters in terms of the soft power propaganda war that's going on. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI. And on this episode, I'm joined by Alex Vatonka. He is the director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute, a Washington, D.C. think tank, and the author of a recent book called The Battle of the Ayatollahs in Iran. He joins to discuss the ongoing protests in Iran, helping to place them in context and to add some really important nuance that must be understood as we think about the events unfolding in the country today. Since mid-September, when an Iranian woman died after being detained for improperly wearing her headscarf, protests have gripped the country. But what sets these protests apart from previous periods in which Iranians took to the streets to demonstrate against the regime? What are the fundamental grievances driving them? And what are the possible outcomes, and the likely ones, from these protests? Alex addresses these and other questions in a fascinating and insightful discussion. Before we get to it, as always, a few quick notes. First, I've got a favor to ask. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or any other app, if you're enjoying it, please give it a rating or leave a review. It really does help us to reach new listeners. Second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Alex Vitanka. Alex, thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the MWI podcast. Thanks for having me. You are uh, an Iran watcher. You're the director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute. You also wrote a fascinating book um, published, I believe, last year uh, that I also want to talk to you about. And and I guess generally, I'm 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 really excited to sort of be able to you know pick your brain a little bit about everything that's going on right now in Iran. We were, uh, we were talking offline before we started recording about strategic attention and how difficult it can be, even for a country with the resources that the United States has, to, you know, to sort of apportion that strategic attention properly to all of the challenges and crises and, uh, and whatnot uh, in the world. I don't know whether the ongoing protests in Iran are getting the appropriate level of strategic attention. Perhaps they are. Uh, but I certainly think that you know, public discussions about these events and the way they're unfolding uh, can always benefit from added context and nuance um, and, and insights from from people like you. So, and I know it can be difficult sometimes to isolate a period of of public unrest in in Iran and treat it as this you know distinct thing separate from say earlier episodes of of protests. Uh, but if we can really focus on 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 those demonstrations, those protests that have taken place since mid September after. Uh, after the uh, arrest of Masa Amini and her death while she was in detention. You know, I guess to sort of kick it off, I wonder if you can describe what those two and a half months have looked like uh, from your perspective, again, you know, as as an Iran expert. Yeah, no, again, John, thanks for having me on. Uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and you pointed out, you know, the issue of strategic attention, whether this uh, events in Iran are getting the sort of attention uh, of, of, of U.S. government, other governments, they should. Uh, and I agree with you in the sense that perhaps they're not. 
but I think there's a reason for that. I think the reason for that is that we've been here before. I mean, we've seen protests in Iran before. It's not the first time you've seen Iranian public out in the streets. And we also have plenty of uh, repeated outcomes to point to. And those outcomes is that the regime comes out and represses successfully and stays in power. So people are skeptical. Uh, including governments, uh, that whether this is uh, any different and whether they should come out and speak loudly or perhaps take action that they might come to regret the day after because, after all, if the regime stays in power, it's a regime that they have to learn to live with and deal with, particularly on the issue of Iran's nuclear program. But I do want to say I think what we're seeing right now is different, and and, and it's different for for, for me, since you asked about how I see it to be different, I think the demographics uh, that we see uh, in the streets make it different. This is a younger generation of people that are out in the streets, uh, uh, Generation Z. Uh, these are people, you know, roughly from the ages of 12 to 20. Um, many of those arrested. Some of the statistics that we have a few days ago pointed to 90% of those arrested by the authorities in Iran were under the age of 20. Um, most, if I shouldn't say most, but I think a majority of those killed have been young people. Um, obviously, the, the protest movement has started labeling the regime a regime of child killers for, for that reason. So the demographics to me are interesting because this is a group of people that's angry before even having had a chance to get its head around basic political knowledge. So this is not a group of people who are, you know, come with political background. If, for example, let me put this in context. 2009, the last time Iran had mass protest movement, which became known as the Green Opposition Movement, you had in that Green Opposition Movement leaders that have been dabbling in politics for years and years, and they led that opposition in the streets, which we know were successfully repressed. This time around, there is no leadership. These are young, angry people that there are two things, two words I would use to describe them. One is they're hopeless in terms of the, they have no hope about the future. Hopeless in the sense that, uh, you know, even if there's a nuclear agreement, if you ask them, that makes no difference to their prospects in Iran. That's how they would answer that question. The second word I would use to describe them is uh, uh, the, the fear, fearlessness. They don't have fear, and that's why they're on the streets. So those of us who are Iran watchers for a long time, we've been pointing out the low threshold for pain among Iranian protesters, that it doesn't actually take much for, for the regime to scare people off the streets. What we're seeing this latest round is that they're actually much more willing to take risks, much more willing to come out. Now, you would notice so far, I haven't pointed out to something many people have pointed out, um, which is that this is a women-led revolution movement or revolution, which is absolutely true. But I would say if we take and put women at the core of it, then really missing the point. Women are 50% of the population. And they certainly have shown plenty of bravery and come out. And because they're getting the brunt of the repressive, um, you know, um, the repressive nature of the regime, women feel that first and foremost. But to say this is just for by women for women is missing the point. This is about an Iranian population that, has had enough and is coming out in the streets, particularly, as I said, that younger demographic.
I think that fearlessness that uh, that you mentioned is fascinating uh, and especially notable. Maybe something that sets it apart from, as you said, from previous protests. Is that solely a function of youth of the the relatively young age of so many of the Iranians who are involved? You know, we 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 assume, and I think it's probably accurate, that when you're younger, you're more willing to take risks. As we get older, we have more responsibilities. Life happens, and we're less likely to want to go out there. So that's true in any society. But I think in the case of this Iranian protest movement, you know, since 1979, the Iranian regime very deliberately has banked on political dissidents packing their bags and leaving the country. That's why you have this huge Iranian diaspora of whatever it is, 7 million around the world. That's a product of 43 years of folks in Iran who decide they can't live under the system as it is. They leave. And in fact, the regime has opened the door for them or encouraged them. Go. If you don't like it here, go. This time around, for whatever reason, um, many are not able to or willing to go. And that, I think, is is the, the, the aspect that makes this so interesting. Um, I, I do, when I think about the, the movement right now, I do have a question in my head on whether not having a singular leader or agenda is a good thing or a bad thing. And if you follow the debate on this, there is no agreement. So, you know, put it, put it very simply, if you have a leader that gives perhaps more cohesion to the cause. But then again, you have an Iranian opposition that is all over the map, which is a good thing because that's how democracies come about. If you had one idea, everybody backed that one idea, that it's tough to have a democracy in action in that sort of environment. And the regime can't go after the decapitation strategy, right? If you, have a, a, if you do not have a singular leader, then who, who do you take out to, to defuse the movement? And the regime is struggling with that. But yet, this is a regime that has almost mastered the art of cracking down on street level and elsewhere. Um, and if they keep the pressure on without killing indiscriminately, compare that to, for example, what Bashar al-Assad did in Syria 10 years ago. We saw in Arab countries during the course of the Arab Spring. In Iran's case, we're talking 300 to 400 people killed in the course of about 11, 12 weeks. Too many, but it's not thousands, right? And this is deliberate. The regime does not want to come out and kill as many as it can because surely it can kill a lot more. But it doesn't do so for two things. It doesn't want to fuel the fire. Number two, it, doesn't want to, it wants to prevent defections from the regime because it knows plenty of people inside the regime are having a horrible time right now justifying what the regime is doing. And they don't want to push those um, those skeptical ones inside the regime to sort of jump ship and leave the regime. I want to ask about, um, I guess, the grievances that are in play here. Uh, Masa Amini was arrested in September in Tehran. I believe she wasn't actually from Tehran, but was uh, was from elsewhere in Iran and visiting Tehran. Uh, she's arrested by the famous or infamous morality police for not wearing her headscarf properly. Not only that, uh, witnesses say she was beaten and and she ultimately dies while in detention. So my question about grievances is, how should we conceptualize the connection between that event and these protests? Is it a you know is it a direct connection where protesters are specifically motivated by that event and are protesting her death and the system you know in which it could happen, 
Or, you know, I guess is it something broader where her death was a spark, but there was a, a pre-existing tinderbox of grievances, um, you know, that are multifaceted and, and not just social or political, but also economic, for example. Look, I think, you know, again, uh, you could, it could have been a whole host of events that uh, would have could have resulted in this eruption that we've seen since mid-September. So as tragic as Masa Amini's death was, um, you know, I know people have been speculating whether the fact that she was an ethnic Kurd uh, and a Sunni had something to do with it. I think that is uh, off the mark. I think it's uh, nothing to do with her ident- ethnic identity. It's about um, the way the regime for so long has literally ignored the basic rights of its own citizens. The way they have been treating Iranian citizens, literally they see their citizens not as citizens with rights, but as security threats to the regime. That's how the Iranian regime looks at its citizens. Every one of those uh, Iranian citizens, majority of them, I mean, we have to uh, it's easy to get carried away. And then we talk about the regime as if there are five people and the rest of the country is against them. Clearly, that's not the case. Iran is a country of 85 million, about 15 to 20% are probably regime supporters. So you do the math. It still adds up, right? It adds up significantly. So between 15, 20 million Iranians are one way or another supported the regime. Some of them are ideologically still believers. Many are bureaucrats, technocrats who get their paycheck from this regime and do not know what's going to happen the day the regime is gone, what's going to happen to them. They look at post-Saddam Iraq and elsewhere in the region. They see what happened to previous regimes and their supporters and they fear that day. And the Iranian opposition, frankly, should do a better job in telling those people on the fence that, look, if the regime goes, doesn't necessarily mean, unless you have blood on your hands, that you have to worry about your future. So I think Mahsa Amini's case is just another example. It was very senseless. I mean, nobody can take that away. There was no need for the regime um, and I mean, look, it's not the case that Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, was sitting in a room and issuing the order to kill this 22-year-old lady, right? That's not the case. But what he is responsible for, as a man who has been in charge as the singular leader since June of 1989, he is the architect for this culture that you have in Iran of going out there and, 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 and you know, treating citizens as security threats and doing whatever they wish to them in the name of God, in the name of religion. Um, but, you know, I, I, I can also tell you, um, John, that, you know, when she was killed, uh, when Mahsa Amini was killed, there were folks inside the regime who very quickly came out and said, instead of denying what happened to this lady, why didn't we just admit to what happened, apologize, and try and sort of make sure that this sort of thing didn't happen? But that's not the regime's approach. The regime's approach is to deny that it can do any wrong. And that's probably what gives people that desire to come out, because they don't see any um, hope that this is a regime that can correct itself, that can reform itself. Certainly not the captain at the top. Ali Khamenei is the most stubborn political leader of, of our time. He never admits to any mistakes, ever. And that, you know, for good or bad, uh, is something that he now has to deal with the consequences of. What about the regime's response to these protests? Um, you know, is there some consistency in the way that uh, that the regime responds to try to tamp down these protests? 
um, I guess, a sort of you know repression toolkit, so to speak, that the regime has used, frankly, successfully uh, in the past? Or you know, are we seeing anything different today? And if so, can we discern anything from that? You know, the regime overall has divided the country into two. You're with us or you're against us. And the minority that the regime trusts are very carefully selected for, for roles, for example, if they join the security forces. So you have to have the credentials. Not anybody off the streets can show up and become a member of you know, elite Revolutionary Guards uh, forces or the besieged militias. You have to be able to prove that you have connections to the regime, that your father, your uncle, your granddad, somehow that you are uh, someone that they can trust and invest in you. So in that sense, it's very sort of uh, thought through. Uh, um, the methods are, are tested. Um, but I have to say, we have seen in the course of the last few weeks plenty of evidence of, of division concern within the regime in terms of how they have handled the situation so, so, uh, so far. So, you know, as, as careful as they like to be, um, when you are facing this mass anger, when clerics cannot put their clerical garbs on anymore because they get attacked because they are seen to be supporting this regime, you know, then all sorts of questions start emerging in the minds of people who are with the regime. And that's exactly what's happening right now. I don't know where it's going to go, um, but even Ali Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, admits to the fact that this is maybe going to be the normal going forward, that these protests will just continue localized, relatively small scale, but they will continue, that they're not going to just overnight disappear because the anger is not going to disappear. As I mentioned before, you wrote a book uh, published last year called The Battle of the Ayatollahs, and I think it's really relevant to this uh, discussion. The book traces uh, the influence of two particular individuals on you know, really the political development of Iran since 1979. And, you know, when we're talking about what's happening today in Iran, political development matters a lot. Protests happen against a backdrop of, of years of political development. The regime's response in many ways is a function of that political development. Uh, you know, more generally, a country's stability and the strength or the, the, the vulnerability of its institutions in the face of public protest, these are all also related to political development. So... I wonder if you can first um, first tell listeners a little bit about the book, but I'm also curious if, you know, as the current protests have been taking place, if you've sort of reflected on some of those influential forces that you wrote about in the book. You know, and thank you for, for mentioning the book, The Battle of the Ayatollahs. I wrote that because I, I um, you know, I'm a Persian speaker. I, I was born in Iran. I know the culture well, uh, and um I can read between the lines. There are plenty of excellent Iranian academics and books on Iran. Many of them are academic in nature. And I happen to teach a lot, lot for the U.S. military, different branches of the U.S. military. And I know my audiences in uniform really want to know about Iran because oftentimes they find themselves in places in the Middle East where they have to deal with the issue of Iran. So they want to learn, but they're not necessarily looking at it from an academic perspective. And, you know, we all love a good story. We want to, we want to, you know, find a way to learn about a subject, uh, maybe through that, you know, the human eye. And I wanted to tell that story, so I looked at who has been the most pivotal 
uh, one, two or more individuals in the course of the history of the Islamic Republic. And as you pointed out, the current Supreme Leader, Ali Khamenei, is one. And the, in, uh, the other individual is Ayatollah Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, who made him Khamenei the Supreme Leader. So I kind of trace the relationship before 1979, before the revolution succeeded, and, and continue following this relationship all the way to the death of Rafsanjani in 2017. And I really have one message, which is that these two individuals had exactly the same kinds of ideas in terms of the role of Islam and religion in governance and where Iran belongs among the nation, uh, uh, you know, family of nations. Um, but how the course of the 1980s and the early 1990s make these two men go in different directions. So Khamenei, who becomes supreme leader in 89, decides that power is the only thing he cares about. Uh, whereas Rafsanjani is much more interested in actually reflecting the wishes of the people. Now, both of them, remember, start off being supporters of Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, but they go in different directions. And I try to tell that story by, by you know, looking at the uh, choices they make, mostly in the realm of foreign policy. So Rafsanjani famously believed that Iran cannot be, an, uh, you know, cannot become a North Korea that Iran's history, uh, its economic realities as a trading nation, where it sits on the map, all of those things basically compel it to be a country that learns to deal not just with its neighbors, but also faraway countries like the United States, that it needs to compromise. Uh, and that a revolution without the support of its people will not go anywhere. That was his core message. Khamenei Almost in the course of his uh, leadership, and that has lasted, as I said, uh, since 1989, almost forgot the people of Iran and started looking beyond the borders of Iran, which is why we've seen Khamenei invest so heavily in the Arab world since uh, 2011 after Arab Spring. And you can go back to 2003 with the invasion of Iraq. These proxies in Iraq and Syria and elsewhere that Khamenei has bankrolled, this is part of his vision, Islamic civilization, as he calls it. And he sees himself as the leader of that. It's great on paper, but he hasn't delivered. And the biggest uh, problem with this approach to politics for Khamenei is, as I said, he forgot the aspirations of the Iranian people who are not interested in his vision of Islamic civilization. They actually have far more modest demands of life. They just want to be left alone, to be able to have a respectful life, to have economic opportunities, and not to be beaten to death just because their veil is a centimeter or two, uh, you know, fallen off the forehead, as happened tragically with Masa Amini. So that's how I would, uh, you know, uh, sort of summarize the, the, the two men. Rafsanjani learned from the mistakes of the, the regime in the 80s, and Khamenei decided to um, double down and decided that with the help of the Revolutionary Guards, that they could force their agenda through regardless of public opinion in, in Iran. How closely connected are the regime uh, in Iran, you know, the individuals and the state, uh, the institutions in, you know, in, say, a, a developed liberal democracy, public sentiment can can easily lead to change in the former in the regime, the individuals in power, while, while the institutions sort of carry on. Um, conversely, if the institutions are less developed and weaker or, you know, if they're 
inextricably linked to the regime, it's, it's sort of difficult to imagine having regime change without some degree of state collapse. Can you describe how, uh, I guess, how you would characterize that relationship in Iran? Excellent question. Tough question. But here's how I would answer it, uh, John. Um, remember, Iran had a constitutional revolution in 1906. So this is a country that's been struggling to find its whatever perfect political model is, but it's been looking for it for well over a century. By the way, women were involved in the 1906 constitutional revolution, which reflects the fact that you have a very dynamic Iranian civil society. have always been there. These institutions that we talk about uh, were not created in 1979, many of them. You know, the foreign ministries, the parliament, uh, and so forth. It's not the institutions that's the problem oftentimes. It's the agenda that those institutions are asked to follow. That's the problem. Having said that, the Islamic Republic is a unique theocracy. And it's called Islamic Republic. And remember, the Islamic part is the unelected part. The Republican Party is supposed to be elected and reflect the views of the people, and that has unfortunately become weaker and weaker over the years. So you have a supreme leader, a position that didn't exist before 1979, who has ultimately unlimited powers. I mean, he can do as he wishes. He can dismiss presidents. He can dismiss any legislation. He can do as he wishes because you know, he's, he's seen to be God's representative on earth. You have a couple of other institutions that the regime deliberately has created since 79 and invested in and empowered, most notably the Revolutionary Guards. So the Revolutionary Guards is essentially responsible for all of Iran's key regional foreign policy decisions, right? Uh, they're responsible for Iran's nuclear program, the missile program, the drone program, what Iran does in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Iraq, in Syria. They sit on probably 30, 40% of the Iranian economy. I mean, here we are, uh, John, you and I talking when the World Cup is happening. I was just reading an article by a friend of mine who pointed out that 90% of Iranian football or soccer teams, one way or another, controlled by the Revolutionary Guards. Right? So th- th- there are institutions in the Islamic Republic that are powerful. And if Iran was going to change, these institutions either need to go away or radically transform themselves. So you could see, for example, an office of a supreme leader as a genuinely advisory body that sits there and and provides uh, advice, but cannot have veto power, which is the case today. You could have a revolutionary guards that exist parallel to the regular armed forces, but without being so dominant. Although it's actually tough to make that case because there are a few countries out there where you have two armed forces, one that's politically loyal to a particular political agenda and then the regular armed forces. That one is tough. But my point nonetheless is this. Uh, I think with a few major, and there are major adjustments, you can keep plenty of these institutions in Iran in place and, and, and they can continue living under a new political order. The Iranian foreign ministry, the parliament, uh, many of the institutions, the judiciary, I mean, it's the leadership and the agenda that needs to go. The rest of the body can stay and actually, frankly, should stay because that's one thing we did learn over the last 20 or so years, particularly in Iraq, is when you take everything out and you hope you can replace everything with something brand new entirely overnight, it's not that easy. So it would be good to hope for gradual change when it's possible. 
when it's possible to have gradual change and shift the agenda and the behavior institution, um, I think that might be better than sort of break everything into pieces and then hope that you can rebuild something better, uh, you know, fast enough without uh, creating anarchy in society. So I want to ask about the involvement of um, of international actors. As you mentioned, there have been lessons uh, that have been learned over the past two decades about, you know, frankly, about getting involved in other countries. And 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 I'm not just talking about large scale military involvement like Iraq and Afghanistan. An invasion of Iran is clearly not something even remotely under uh, under consideration. But during the Arab Spring, for instance, the U.S. and and other Western governments really struggled to come up with how best to position themselves vis-a-vis the protests and the regimes threatened by those protests. I'm not sure we 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 got it fully right anywhere. Um, you know, so today, for governments like like that of the U.S. or or those of certain European countries, for example, who have interests in Iran or in the region, is it a matter really of just sitting back and watching? Um, you know, maybe at most issuing statements of solidarity with the protesters. And I guess, you know, that relates to a to a related question uh, that I think is actually a really interesting one as well. You know, authoritarian regimes have a habit of accusing other states of, of fomenting unrest. We've seen, uh, we've seen Vladimir Putin accuse the U.S. government of essentially fully orchestrating all of the various color revolutions, for instance. Is the Iranian regime doing something similar, attributing, you know, attributing the protests to sort of nefarious activities by, uh, you know, by the U.S. government or, or Israel, for example? Look, for sure, uh, uh, I think the, the regime genuinely seems to believe that much of what's happening is being uh, planned uh, and orchestrated from outside. Um, you know, there's one Iranian television station, it's called Iran International, that is headquartered in London with big presence in, in the United States, in Washington. They have been very active in, in keeping the messages that come out of Iran uh, alive to let the rest of the world know what's going on. So Iranian regime is notorious for, you know, blocking access to internet, particularly sites, things like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that. So what Iran International and other diaspora channels have done, which is ironic because I earlier I mentioned to you how the regime was encouraging political dissent to emigrate, go out, so we don't have to deal with you. The thing is they went, they went outside, but they kept doing the political activities from outside. And and that you know was something that uh, Ayatollah Khamenei clearly hadn't uh, calculated. So you, you you do have a regime that feels that this is part of a plot. I mean, they mention names, countries specifically: United States, UK, Israel, and Saudi Arabia are the four countries that they mention specifically that have come together. There are so many articles. I don't bore you and, and your listeners with the details, but how the U.S. is the mastermind, Israel is the tactician, the Saudis are financing everything, the British are the media masters in terms of the soft power propaganda war that's going on. And, 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 and the sad part is that you don't have to have a degree in political science to walk around any street in any of Iran's cities or towns and talk to ordinary Iranians and hear the anger from the public. You don't have to come up with all sorts of elaborate conspiracy theories about this being some, you know, are foreign intelligence services involved in one way or another? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. What I do know for sure, because this is being expressed on Iranian national TV, but their own analysts, 
that there is much anger in Iranian society. That cannot be put down to the work of any single intelligence service. That's a result of the policies of a regime that for so long has ignored the demands of its own people. And again, that's not me saying it. Those are exactly types of sentiments you hear if they, uh, if you listen to Iranian uh, commentators on Iranian national TV today. Now, um, I think the the, the the part about uh, foreigners, um, and you talked about whether there's a role for the international community in terms of whether they can pressure the regime to act in a certain way. The regime, again, ironically enough, cares about its image. So it gets very upset when the United Nations issues you know, a condemnation of its human rights technique. But it takes it very seriously, uh, personally, it seems. Even though anybody who follows Iran will tell you there's a huge problem with violation of basic human rights of its citizens of Iran. Um, what international community can do because the U.S. and the West generally have sanctioned Iran for so long, there isn't much more you can sanction, frankly, right? And the regime for some time now has pivoted towards China and Russia for its international trade and international diplomatic needs. So they don't need the West for that. I mean, you know, this is in South Africa, or you can come up with other maybe even better examples. Um, what the international community can do, because it really has sanctioned itself out, on Iran, what they can do is to provide that moral support. And I think that's what you're seeing more and more. As these protests have continued, you've seen how from the European Parliament to the White House of of President Biden have realized that, look, long-term investment on the issue of Iran ought to be in the Iranian people and this this different society that they want for themselves because the Iranians are asking for the sort of society that would be a, a godsend for the rest of the world, because that would be a non-revolutionary Iran. That would be a, if you will, quote unquote, normal Iran. That United States, the Western Euro- European countries would love to deal with the way things were essentially back before 1979. So, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that anybody uh, is talking about the United States militarily getting involved, or, or I'm, I'm even saying there isn't much more that the U.S. can do in terms of sanctions or the Europeans. What you can do is provide that moral support. You can't keep the pressure on in terms of, you know, highlighting to the rest of the world what is happening inside Iran in terms of human rights violations and so forth. So the, there is a role. That's my point. There is a role for the international community, but we just need to be clear what that role is. You've talked about the regime's relationship with the people um, as poor or or as unaccountable as it might be. Obviously, the people uh, are not a monolith, and I don't mean you know to suggest that you are implying that that the Iranian people are uh, you know a, a homogenous single entity. But you know, while there are lots of ways you could probably identify subgroupings within the Iranian population, if we do so in mainly say you know, economic terms and distinguish between the elites and the masses. Uh, And I don't use that term masses at all pejoratively. To what extent is that useful in thinking about the protests? Is there, you know, is there potentially a role for the elites to play in supporting the protests? Uh, Or are they fundamentally a grassroots phenomenon? And, and, you know, that's, that's where their power and potential effectiveness comes from. Right. I, I would say specifically to the question you asked about where the elite are. If we're talking about the elite in in Iran that um, are not part of the regime, uh, but are doing well 
in terms of income and standards of living. That is not the part of Iranian society that the regime fears or is the part of the Iranian society that's in the street. Which takes us to your, your comment. The grassroots that you're describing is exactly what is, you know, pushing this uh, protest movement forward. Um, you can be fabulously wealthy in the Islamic Republic. You can have access to anything you want. Iran might have over 3,000 different sanctions on it, which imposes all sorts of restrictions on trade and so on. But you can literally get anything you want from any point from the planet Earth uh, if you can pay for it. So wealthy are not the ones that necessarily, I mean, they might not like the regime, but they're not going to risk their possessions by confronting the regime. That's not the, where the pressure is coming from. The pressure is uh, uh, mostly actually from the, the the lower middle class, the working class, and interestingly enough, increasingly from the rural population. So, you know, Iran's revolution of 1979 was not a rural revolution. It was very much led by the cities, the big cities, Tehran, Esfahan, Mashhad, and Tabriz to some extent. The rural population provided many of the bureaucrats because they tended to come from more religious backgrounds once the new regime was in place, but they didn't bring the regime down. The regime of the Shah was brought down by the left, by communists, by social democrats, which tended to be part of the intelligentsia. They came from the big cities and they came to regret their role in bringing the Shah down and they, in, in fact, became victims of the Islamic Republic. This time around, you are seeing such an economic pressure, number one, on this sort of, as I said, the lower middle classes, middle classes, working class across the nation, that now if you look on a map that shows you where the protests are happening, it's not happening in one or two locations. It's happening hundreds of different locations across the nation, right? So this is much more of a nationwide uh, movement. Again, economic grievances is part of it. Sanctions have not helped. But frankly, those people who say the protests uh, are just as a res result of sanctions are, are not getting it, if you will. Uh, even if the sanctions weren't there, the, the, the pact between the ruling elite, uh, the Islamists, uh, led by Khamenei and the people, if, this, if such a pact ever existed, it hasn't really delivered for a very long time. I would say go back to the 90, early 1980s. I think, in fact, since the early 1980s, within a few years of the fall of the Shah, the Iranian masses that did bring the Shah down, and nobody can deny that. Nobody can say that the Shah you know, wasn't brought down by the Iranian people. It was a popular revolution. But vast majority of those Iranians very quickly came to regret it regret their decision to take part in bringing the Shah down. And here's the, here was an opportunity for the Islamists, for Khamenei and others, to, to sort of accept that reality and start delivering uh, and hope to legitimize themselves. And they didn't. As I said before, Khamenei's approach has been to double down, to use force, to look to people like Vladimir Putin or Chinese Communist Party as allies that can sustain his regime. In all of these calculations, you can hear me say one thing. He didn't look to the Iranian people for legitimacy. And that is his biggest sin. And I think he's going to be, arguably, that is going to be what is going to bring him or the regime down. That is a great transition to, to maybe a final question or two to wrap up. 
um, you know, there is a, a whole range of possible outcomes to what we're seeing, right? On one end of the spectrum, the protests could just sort of fade out with no real, you know, discernible or meaningful effects. Uh, on the other extreme end of the spectrum, there's, you know, I suppose total regime collapse. Forecasting is obviously difficult, and you know, I, I hesitate to ask you to make a concrete prediction. But you know, there are, there are of those potential outcomes. Are there any that seem maybe marginally more likely than others? Right. Since you say this is sort of we're rounding up, let me try and be optimistic. Uh, and it's not easy to be optimistic when we're talking about Iran or Middle East in general. Uh, but the optimist in me would certainly not want to see a, a, a sort of um, anarchy erupting. I, I think the breakdown of, of Iran as a nation state is not just terrible news for the country of Iran, but it's terrible news for the wider Middle East. This is not a small country. This is a country of 85 million people. And if it becomes a black hole then everybody in that neighborhood, including U.S. interests, will pay a price for it. So the optimist in me wants to see a, some kind of a transition to a, a very different political system in that country. Uh, and I think that political system would have to listen to the public's demands. And the public's demands are very clear. The theocracy of Ali Khamenei, um, is not one that vast majority of Iranians by any account are, are, are interested in. So I I look at the um, that uh, you know situation. If that can be prevented, that would be ideal. But the other thing I would say is this is not a one-off. Um, these protests will uh, maybe ebb away in the next few days or weeks, I don't know. But I can almost guarantee that they will return again with a vengeance soon enough because the uh, underlying uh, problems that this regime has created for itself through its actions, through its stubborn commitment to unpopular Islamist militant policies, they're not going to go away. If they change those policies, this regime could prolong its own uh, lifespan. You know, there are folks inside of the Iranian regime who kind of quietly hint at less militant Islamism, less adventure, adventurous foreign policy, more focus on the basic needs of the Iranian people and nation building at home. That might prolong the, 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 the life of the regime. And that might be the way they're gonna, they will choose to go at some point, but not while Ali Khamenei, the 83-year-old supreme leader, is still there. So in the short term, unfortunately, I don't see a big change because, as I said, the man is stubborn. He believes his legacy is to leave things as they are, essentially, as bad as it looks. He, he thinks he, history will prove him right. But those around Khamenei um, surely know that once he's gone, that is the moment they need to change course if there is a chance for this regime to be able to, to survive this public anger that they're facing. Right. And, you know, it's noteworthy that this regime has had one successful leadership succession in 1989. Uh, Khamenei is, uh, is, as you mentioned, 83 years old. There have been you know, occasional rumors about his failing health. Uh, his departure from, you know, I guess the apex of the Iranian state structure by whatever means that takes place, you know, it really appears as the most likely next uh, inflection point in Iran. Maybe that's the best way to put it. However, it's not clear, I think, to many outside observers what the succession plan is uh, when he leaves. It's maybe not even clear that there is a succession plan. Is that fact, you know, uh, Khamenei's centrality to the regime and the sort of murkiness surrounding what might come after him, does that play into how we should conceptualize, you know, the protests and, and the possible outcomes? 
No, I think we're seeing signs of uh, these protests um, essentially reinforcing something that regime elders, senior figures would have known all along, which is how unpopular they have become. Uh, but when I look at the demographics, when I look at these young boys and girls, uh, and the regime admits, I mean, listen to what they're saying. They admit these are our boys and girls. These are not some aliens from another planet that have come here to create trouble for us. These are our own people. This is a generation that was born 20, 30 years after 1979. The regime has had plenty of time to indoctrinate them, to make them love the system. But the opposite has happened. They hate the system. And in fact, they're so, uh, you know, ready to come out and confront it at that about three, four hundred of them have died in the last 11 weeks in the pursuit of a different political order. So if this is not a wake-up call for the regime, I don't know what it takes for them. And if they can see the, you know, the writing on the wall, then I'm afraid we're going to go in, an, in, a, in a much more sinister direction, which is we are going to go in the direction of um, the protest movement, perhaps. And again, I don't want to see it, but that's a real danger. Uh, becoming uh, more uh, angrier and with access to arms and so forth, then um, we talk in a very different and very, uh, as I said, uh, darker uh, scenario going ahead. But the regime has an opportunity to prevent that from happening, but genuinely listening, but genuinely changing the course. But my friends who are uh, maybe much more clear-eyed than I am will say this is too too late in the day for the regime to, to change course, that it needs to go, and it needs to go in its entirety. Well, Alex, this has been a fascinating conversation for me, and and, and I trust it will be for listeners as well. Um, it's a really interesting topic and an important one, uh, and you have been uh, really generous by making time to chat with me today. So, so I just want to thank you again. No, thank you, John. It was a real pleasure speaking to you, and, 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 and thank you for the opportunity. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.